Shalom. I'm Rabbi Leon Morris, the president of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, and I want to personally thank you for downloading this podcast. This marks our 800th Pardes from Jerusalem podcast, the first podcast series produced by Pardes, and it has been going strong since the year 2007. I would like to offer a special thank you to Pardes alumnus and board member Larry Kluger, who launched it into reality. Larry has been involved continuously since that time, and the entire Pardes community has been so touched by his devotion to this special project. Thank you so much, Larry. Pardes from Jerusalem remains our most successful podcast with over 11,000 downloads per month. The buzz it has generated over the years has increased Pardes's reach, making the teachings of our spectacular faculty available to learners worldwide. And it has paved the way for other successful Pardes podcast series, such as A Shot of Torah with Rabbi Levi Cooper and The Jewish Story with Rav Mike Foyer. You can find the entire library of Pardes podcasts, along with videos, Divrei Torah, and more at elmod.pardes.org, Pardes' online learning platform. There is no one more fitting to record this 800th podcast than Rabbi Mayer Schweiger, who has been a part of our faculty for more than 40 years and has grown to be a source of learning for so many students, myself included. Rav Mayer, as he is affectionately known to so many, has recorded over 200 podcasts to date. We are so grateful, Mayer, for your tremendous commitment to Pardes. You have touched so many through your teaching, and we know you will continue to do so for years to come. In this podcast, Rav Mayer weaves together two themes that have been and will continue to be explored in our various seminars, retreats, and short-term programs, relationships, and identity. Now, Rabbi Mayer Schweiger for our 800th podcast on Parashat Shemot. This week's parsha is Parashat Shemot. Before we begin our learning, I would like to note two things which I will come back to at the end of the podcast. First, this is Pardes' 800th podcast. What an honor it is to me to be doing it. Second, this Shabbat is my mother's yardsite. I would like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of my mother, Esther Bat Meir Veroje. Today, we'll be looking at Shmot, names, names in our Parsha, names in the book, the significance of names. And before we look at our Parsha in the book of Shmot, I would like to go back to the book of Breshit and see a few examples of names and their significance. The first time we come across the word names, Shemot, is in Genesis, chapter 2, verse 20. And you can follow me on the attached source sheet. Adam gave names 
to all of the animals, to all of the birds, to all of the beasts of the field. By giving them names, and I've discussed this in a previous podcast, Adam completes their creation, and in so doing becomes a partner with God in creation. By giving them names, he identifies them. And in identifying them, categorizing them, classifying them, he has a relationship with them. And in our verse, what perhaps is even more significant is that by giving them the names, he also learns something about himself. He is lonely. There is nothing corresponding to him in all the creatures that he has given names to. And when he has that realization, that's when God puts him into a sleep. And from him creates a woman that he brings to the Adam. And in verse 23, the Adam seems to be amazed, astonished. He says, this time, here is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called an Isha because she has been taken out of an Ish. In the very act of naming this woman, he now takes on a new name. He is not only Adam, he is an Ish. And the new name creates also a new awareness, a new understanding. He needs someone. He now has someone who, on the one hand, he shares something with. In the letters of their name, they have two letters, Aleph Shin, fire, which we could also understand as passion, which they share. But at the same time, they're also different. He has a Yud, she has a He. And those two letters are complementary. Because spelled together, they're a name of God. Which means that here is someone who I can connect with. But even more than connect with them, our connection can now be complementary and somehow bring out the name of God in the world. Names identify us, but they identify us in the context of a relationship. And in this case, the profound relationship of a man and a woman, of two human beings, is expressed by this new name, or I should say new names, which each of them have. Let us move on. Chapter 17 in Breshit. In chapter 17, God creates a covenantal relationship with Avram. A relationship which is now crystallized, having been developed from chapter 12. But this covenantal relationship is not only with Avram, it's also with his wife, Sarai. And in the process of creating 
that new relationship. And I will add, giving both Avram and Sarai a new identity, because the meaning of this covenantal relationship is that they will now become the first Jews. That is reflected in taking on a new name. Avram will now become Avraham. Sarai will become Sarah. It is worth noting, Avram and Sarai were the names that were given to them by their parents. And to be honest, I don't know what their parents were necessarily thinking when they gave them that name. And in fact, Avram and Sarai may not even be Hebrew names, Jewish names. In the Hebrew, Avram means a father. Sarai is related to some form of being a princess. And God takes their names, which were given to them by their parents, slightly adapts them, preserves them in their essence, but puts on another layer. And in so doing, transforms them into a new identity, a new persona, as I said, that will now have this covenantal relationship with God. And it's important to add that in doing so, God also reveals to Avram a name of God which did not appear up to this point. God says to Avram, I am El Shaddai, which I think is extremely important. At the very moment that a new relationship is created, we have new names that come in to somehow express the nature of that relationship. Avram will become Avraham, the father of a multitude of nations. At the very least, that could be an expression of the 12 tribes, as we will see later on. Beyond that, as the rabbis understand, he will become the father of humanity, a new father of humanity, who has a mission to humanity. Sarai will also take on that role. She will be the Ezer Kinegdo, so that it is not just Avram who is entering into this relationship. It is the two of them. And once again, the two of them are entering into a relationship, which then brings into the world a new name of God, El Shaddai. And I'll just mention, as I've done in the previous podcasts, two understandings of El Shaddai. One, which is generally translated, the Almighty, the All-Powerful. The God who will intervene in the natural order. Who will bring blessings, not only to Avram, but to the world at large on his behalf. In his merit. And that is the meaning of this covenantal relationship. Avram needs to play his part, but God will reciprocate. And the other interpretation of El Shaddai is a nurturing God, like Shaddai in breasts. A God who will care. A God who is very much involved. So that when God and Avram 
enter in Ansara, enter into this covenantal relationship, we have n- name changes that reflect the new relationship. Let's move on. Genesis chapter 25. We're told of the birth of Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau. Yaakov, in chapter 25, verse 26, is given that name by his father because he is holding on to the heel of Esav. What does that name mean? On one level, that name expresses this idea of a kind of underdog, of someone who's trying to somehow get ahead but he's holding on to the heel of the other one who seems to have the upper hand. Engaging someone's heel is not necessarily so positive. The first time where that comes up is in the curse of the snake. The snake will be huffing and puffing and biting the heel of the person. This idea of a certain enmity tripping him up. But then we go to chapter 32. And we're all familiar with the famous story before Jacob is about to encounter his brother, Esav. He's very afraid. He's very afraid that this may lead to a war. In the middle of the night, he gets up and he tries to put all of his camp, his wives, his children, in a safe place. And then we see in verse 25, and Jacob is all alone, and then all of a sudden, there is someone who starts wrestling with him. And the one who's wrestling with him injures him in verse 26. But Jacob will not let go. Jacob keeps on fighting. And as a result of that, in verses 28 and 29, This man says to him, what is your name? And he says, Jacob. And he says to him, you will no longer be Jacob. You will be Israel. What does Israel mean? Israel means the one who fights. Israel is the one who prevails. It is not the one who takes you by the heel. It is the one who takes you head on, who will not let go. And in fact, in this verse, you fought with God and with men. You have prevailed. You have overcome. You have triumphed. Jacob and Israel are two very, very different names. Jacob is the name of the person who feels vulnerable. The name of the person who maybe is deceptive. Who tries to trip you up. Who is always looking around his shoulder who has to be very careful. Israel is the name of the one who fights until he prevails, until he gains recognition. It's interesting that in the case of Avraham and Sarah, the moment their names are changed, that is their name forever. And I mentioned earlier that The new name which they have is another layer on the old name. A layer which then becomes how they are to be known in the world. With Jacob, 
He has two very, very different names. And in fact, the name Israel does not supersede the name Jacob. But as we see in the rest of the book of Breshit, he constantly is going back and forth between those two names. And in any given situation, he is always confronted by the question, who am I? Am I Jacob or am I Israel? Am I someone who feels threatened, who feels vulnerable, who feels the need to have to somehow be devious, be careful, or he is someone who feels confident, who feels determined and sure that he will triumph. I just want to point out, which appears on our source sheet, in chapter 32, Jacob is named by some mysterious man. Is it an angel? It is, is it a prophet? Is it maybe Jacob himself, who is perhaps dreaming, maybe hoping for a different identity? But in chapter 35, God comes to Jacob, and God gives God's seal of approval to that new name. God calls him Israel. And once again, I want to note When God calls him Israel, in chapter 35, verse 11, God says to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come out of your loins. What is God doing there? God is, in effect, restating the covenant which God made with Avraham in chapter 17. And interestingly enough, when God changes his name, God once again introduces God's name, this name El Shaddai, so that in giving Jacob a new identity, Israel, God also, has a new name, which is, as I said, reinstated in the world, El Shaddai. What I've been trying to show is how names, on the one hand, are an expression of an identity, but are very much part of a relationship and a reflection of a relationship. Let us now go to our parsha. And I want to now pick up with the last thing that we did. I said that in Breshit, Jacob, the individual, is sometimes known as Jacob, sometimes known as Israel. It all depends on the context. But now we're in Exodus. And we're talking about the sons of Israel, the children of Israel. And that's how our parshan, the book, begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And I think it's extremely important to note throughout the book and subsequently, they're not called the sons of Jacob. They're called the sons of Israel. 
being called the sons of Israel is an expression of grandeur, of majesty. Those are the ones who came down to Israel, those majestic figures. And then in the continuation of the chapter, we're told of how these children of Israel increase and are fruitful and multiply, and the land is filled with them. And then all of a sudden, a new king arises in Egypt. And let's look at verse 9. The king says to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are numerous and powerful for us, from us, than us. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they increase and then become a threat to us. Note, the king of Egypt is the first one who gives us a name, who calls us Am Bene Israel, the people, the sons of Israel. This is his response when the when we no longer have a number or group of individuals who come down who are very significant, but all of a sudden a population explosion. He calls us a people. And he gives us the name, the people of the children of Israel. We're a powerful people. And in fact, you can see that the power of this people is actually frightening, is intimidating. He's afraid of what they might possibly do. And therefore, he needs to deal wisely with them. Interestingly, when Pharaoh gives us the name of Am Yisrael, he says it to his people. And in saying it to his people, it's expressing a relationship. You are my people, but they are a different people. In fact, they are a people who undermine our people, who threaten our people. So we have to deal wisely with them. I now define someone as the other, as a threat to me. In naming them, it expresses our adversarial relationship. Very different than what we had in Breshit. And if we look, in fact, a little bit further, in verse 15, the king of Egypt now talks to the Hebrew midwives, or some might say the midwives of the Hebrews. And in verse 16, he says, when you give birth to the Hebrew women, this is a new name. This is not the children of Israel, the Hebrews. What's the significance of that name? Well, if we go back to Genesis, when Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt and he has not yet revealed himself to them, and they bring Benjamin, and then Joseph invites them to his home to eat with him, we're told in chapter 43, verse 32, they served him by himself, Joseph, and the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians by themselves, because Egyptians do not eat bread with the Hebrews. That is an abomination to the Egyptians. The term Hebrew is a pejorative term. 
It's not just the other. It's the other who is an abomination, who's revolting to me. Here are two names. If we go back to our parsha, chapter 1. On the one hand, here is Am B'nai Yisrael. That's how Pharaoh relates to them. That's how he identifies them. They are powerful. They are numerous. They are a threat. And on the other hand, they're Hebrews. They're revolting. They're an abomination. They're dispensable. Let's try to kill their babies. Rid ourselves of them. Now I would like to come to the final step of names. And that is picking up, first of all, on how God sees the Jewish people and then talking about God's name. If we look at chapter 3, the story of the burning bush. So first look at chapter 3, verse 7. God is talking to Moshe. And God says, I have seen the affliction of my people. Extremely important. Pharaoh says, that people, the other. And God says, my people. God has a completely different way of relating to that people. And in verse 9, God refers to them, Tzakat B'nei Yisrael, the people of Israel, which is also how Pharaoh referred to them. But God has heard the cry of the people of Israel, a cry which is not compatible with who they are as the people of Israel, a cry which says, they need to be now delivered so that they can become the people of Israel. And if we look further down in chapter 4, when God is talking to Moshe in another context, just before he's about to go down to Egypt, God says to Moshe in chapter 4, verse 22, You shall tell Pharaoh, thus says Hashem, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And I have said to you, let my son go, and they may serve me. But you have refused, and I will kill your son, your firstborn. So how does God, what's the name which God refers, which God uses in referring to the people of Israel? My people, the children of Israel, my son, my firstborn. On the one hand, God refers to us, with this name, the children of Israel, a name of majesty, which is not reflected in their current situation. And on the other hand, God refers to them by names that are intimate. My people, my son, my firstborn. So clearly there is a clash between the names which God gives the Jewish people and the names which Pharaoh gives them which will ultimately lead to the ten plagues and to the Red Sea. But now let's also look at how the names which God uses for the Jewish people are very much connected with God's name. And let me look at one verse. This is chapter 3, verse 13. 
There is a back and forth between Moshe and God at the burning bush, and Moshe is very reluctant to take on his mission. And at one point, Moshe says, okay, I'm going to come to the Jewish people, and they're going to ask me, what's his name? Who appeared to you? Who are you? What will I tell them? Now note that God already told Moshe who he is. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, God says to Moshe, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So what else do we need? And evidently Moshe feels that's not enough. And evidently God then responds in another way. God says, asher I am who I will be. I am who I am, which is very, very esoteric. And then if you look a little bit further down in verse 15, God says, tell the children of Israel, Hashem, the four-letter name of God, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's what you should tell them. Hashem. And now I want to go down to next week's parsha, chapter 6. God spoke to Moshe and said to him, and I want to start out saying, God spoke, God being Elohim, said to Moshe, I am Hashem. And then he says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai. But by, but by my name, Hashem, I was not known to them. And then in verse 6, tell the children of Israel, I am Hashem. And in verse 7, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you will know that I am Hashem, your God. What is happening in our book? Until now, the name of God, which it seems to be was known to the patriarchs, known in the sense of the name of God which they experienced in their lives, was El Shaddai. And here in chapter 6, God is saying, but they did not experience the name Hashem. What is the meaning of that name Hashem? I am that I am, that I will be. According to rabbinic understanding, Hashem is a supernatural God. It's the essence of God. It's the name that reflects the unknowable God. A God is, that is completely beyond our comprehension. And this is the story of the book of Shemot. As I've mentioned in a previous podcast, we start off in a reality where God's name doesn't appear. And then when it appears, it appears as Elohim, which is a very generic name, which is how God is reflected in nature. And then in chapter 6, God recalls the name El Shaddai. But what is going to become now the dominant name of God is Hashem, the four-letter name of God, the God who is supernatural, the God which is completely beyond anything that we could imagine. The patriarchs had one type of relationship with God, 
And that relationship with God was connected with the name El Shaddai. They experienced God as the one who brings them blessing, as the one who intervenes in the natural order, who creates miracles, but miracles that are within the natural framework. The Jews now in Egypt will experience a completely different God, a completely different name. The name is a reflection of a completely different experience. They will experience ten plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea, revelation at Sinai, manna in the desert. They will experience a complete upheaval, overturning of the natural order. Their relationship with God will be a completely different relationship than the ones which their ancestors had. So once again, names reflect a relationship. God expresses his relationship by referring to the Jewish people as his people, his son, his firstborn, the children of Israel. And the Jewish people experience God by this name Hashem. And this reaches its climax at the end of the book of Shemot, when the tabernacle is built. And after the tabernacle is built, we're told in chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, how the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Hashem is not only Hashem, the glory of Hashem. The Jewish people experience the most powerful expression of Hashem that anyone could ever experience. The Hashem, who on the one hand is so transcendent, becomes a living reality for the Jewish people. That's what makes this book so powerful. The names. I want to end with a quote that appears in Midrash Tanhuma at the end of the book of Shemot. A quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, which kind of sums up what we've been speaking. It says in Ecclesiastes, a good name is better than good oil. And then it goes on to say, a person is called by three names, one that his father and mother call him, one that people call him, and one that he acquires for himself. The best one is the one that he acquires for himself. Look at this. What is my name? Well, I have a name which I was given by my parents, which may be expressing their aspirations, their hopes. I have another one which is expressed by the people around me, how they see me, how they relate to me. But ultimately the question is, what is my name that I create for myself, that I want to be known by, by the people around me? My name is essentially created by the things that I do. It is not coincidental that in chapter 1, two people who have a name, the midwives, we could have sufficed it to speak about the Hebrew midwives, but no, the Torah felt necessary to mention their names, Shifra and Puah. Why is it so important to mention their names? 
because their names are very much associated with what they went on to do. What they went on to do was to save Jewish babies, to defy Pharaoh. They made a name for themselves and will be forever remembered as the two women who were able to be true to their names to save children, to further life. In my source sheet, I brought at the very end a poem by the famous Israeli poet Zelda, which I think encapsulates what we've done. I won't read it right now, but I would actually like to now use this as a springboard to speak about my mother. Yad Vashem has a project, and Zelda's poem, I think, has been very much connected with that project. Every person has a name. The project being, we speak about six million Jews, but that's very, very impersonal. It's important that each of those people should have a name, a name which is connected with a picture, with a story. My mother was a Holocaust survivor. Her name was Esther. I won't go into her story, how she survived. She hid in the woods. She went through a tremendous amount of suffering. Her whole family, except for one sister, was killed in the Holocaust. She actually saw her sister being shot in front of her eyes. But after the Holocaust, my mother came to America, created a new life. Who was my mother? Esther. Queen Esther. Majesty. My mother was not a queen, as her Bible predecessor. But she was in a metaphorical sense. Anyone who knew her saw her as a woman of dignity, as a woman of grandeur. And perhaps... Similar to Esther, similar, true to her name. She was hidden. She did a tremendous amount of things, but it wasn't in your face. She never was looking to have her name in the newspapers or her name singled out by anybody. Her name was in doing unbelievable things for all the people around her without getting any credit for it a woman of tremendous modesty, a woman of tremendous care and compassion, a woman who always had a smile on her face, who if you needed something, she would always get it done, a woman who cared for family. When she gave me my name, Mayor Yoshua, I am named after both my grandfathers, my mother's father and my father's father. Her aspirations were that I should <clears throat> perpetuate the memory of those who were gone. And perhaps she instilled in me a profound sense of continuity, of connection to the past, not only in terms of my limited family, but in terms of my being a member of the Jewish people. This is something which my mother instilled in me, it was important, as I've mentioned on other occasions, my mother wanted me to get a Jewish education. 
to know what it means to be a Jew. Not just to have that name, Jew, but to give it content. Because of the Jewish education, which my mother fought for so deeply, perhaps that's why I decided to become a Jewish educator. And as I am wont to say, whatever Torah I now give out to those around me is because of my mother. And therefore, I would like to end by saying, doing podcasts has been a very, very profound and rewarding experience for me. It has given me the opportunity to reach a much wider audience. It has given me the opportunity to somehow bring Torah to people who otherwise might not have access to Torah. And I would like to say not only in terms of myself, but as far as Pardes as a whole, I think our ability to now go beyond our Beit Midrash and to reach out to people across the globe has been a way of somehow expanding the very important Torah which I think we have to give. I thank Pardes for, as I said, giving me the opportunity to do these podcasts. I can't thank enough all those people who have, over the years, sent me emails expressing their gratitude, and the people who have entered Pardes, connecting me immediately with my podcasts. And I would like to thank my mother for having the determination, the foresight, and the sacrifice, in many cases, to be determined that I somehow continue the lost remnant that was destroyed by the Nazis, and through me, both physically and through my teaching, to somehow create a much more vibrant Jewish people. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. And thank you to Rabbi Leon Morris for his introduction to this, our 800th podcast. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week on Pardes from Jerusalem.